So I want to jump right in. There's a lot to say, and whether you believe it or not, just a little bit of time to say it. We are continuing through the tough topics, and I do feel that this one is a very much tough topic. Um, a few caveats. Uh, I actually took an entire class during my seminary um, course collective on the problem of evil. And I don't bring that up to say that I am an expert. I just bring that up to say that if a seminary can dedicate an entire semester to this topic, I would be foolish to think that I can condense it down and answer all of your questions about this in one uh, hour session. So I just say that to say there's a lot to talk about. And you might have questions after this, or this might bring up more questions rather than solving this one question for you. So what I want to do is provide a framework, a biblical framework for how we might even just simply approach this question, and then obviously how we would want to answer this question as well. And um, as we kind of jump into this, raise your hand if you've ever asked this question in your own life or if you know somebody who has. Anyone? Yeah? Most of us in the room, if not all of us, I would assume all of us have asked a question like this. So it's something that we can all relate to. It's something that we've all experienced, suffering, and it's a question that we probably have all had. Now, um, with this question, there's two ways that we can approach it and address it. There's one, which is going to be more of the environment that we're in tonight, where it's going to be more educational, academic, where um, we're kind of in a neutral position to answer this question. So it's going to be kind of head knowledge. We're going to look at the Bible, what it has to say, um, and, and that's good and right, and that will build that foundation for us to answer the question. But then the other way is um, sometimes this question gets asked during the midst of deep pain and sorrow, in the midst of suffering. And when it comes to asking the question in that position, sometimes there's a little bit more nuance to how we would go about answering that. Now, ideally, the, the answer to the question is exactly the same. The foundation, the groundwork is there. But I do want to kind of on the back end of tonight give at least more of a pastoral reflection on how we can walk alongside somebody who is actually going through suffering, not just answer in a very educational way, in a very um, academic way, this question of suffering in the world. So that's what I want to do with our time tonight, and I want to jump right in. Uh, the, the main thing I want to do uh, at the start here is uh, basically address some implicit assumptions that are in the question, basically um, some things that are uh, assumed in just asking the question. And so uh, I'll give them to you up front here. You have them in your notes. So first, we want to look at what we've already established, at least that we all have um, dealt with this in our own lives. The first assumption is that there is actually suffering in the world. That's an assumption made in the question. It's a true assumption. We'll talk more about it. Second, we're also implying that there is a God. He exists, but not only that he exists, but that he is good. The question asks, how can a good God allow suffering. That's the implicit assumption. We'll talk more about that. And then third, we're also implying that this good God allows for suffering to happen. Meaning the assumption here is that he could stop it if he wanted to and chooses not to. So therefore, how do we reconcile that? How do we understand that? Um, so the third assumption, uh, this good God allows suffering. So I want to take each one of these and, and break these down. So the first one, the first assumption, there is suffering in the world. Now, when I say suffering, uh, I want us to think somewhat interchangeably with the term evil. Uh, we can rightly understand that evil leads to suffering. Suffering is a byproduct of evil in the world. And so um, uh, we can even kind of dumb that down a little bit to just say bad things. Bad things happen in the world. That's not a uh, radical idea. We all understand that. We would acknowledge that. 
And the way that we would understand how this works out is through two types of evil. There's moral evil and then there is natural evil. So moral evil we'll define as any significant case of pain and suffering which is caused by free persons, either intentionally or by culpable neglect. That's just a wordy definition to basically say moral evil is when a person does a bad thing, either intentionally or unintentionally. And so examples of this uh, would be murder, rape, adultery, theft, racism, abuse, etc. You can, you can come up with um, different examples in your, in your mind. Um, they're usually intentional. Most of those are intentional. But we would even include situations where it could be an unintentional moral evil or where somebody has um, an obligation to intervene to keep evil from happening and they don't. We'd also include that in the broad category of moral evil. So you get the picture. You can probably understand how that works out. Then the other way that we would understand evil or suffering in the world is natural evil. And that can be defined as any significant case of pain or suffering not caused by free persons, but by impersonal objects and forces. Uh, another wordy definition to basically say things like tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, genetic defects or disease and plague, things like that would be under the category of natural evil. So these are things that just occur within the normal laws of nature. So a storm happens because of the normal laws of nature and then from that storm you can have a tree fall and, and kill someone or something of that sort. No one caused that to happen per se, but it was an evil, it was suffering that was just caused by the natural laws that exist in the world. Uh, the, the reason why this is so uh, important is because this is going to give us um, basically the basis as why this question is important, not just for Christians, but for everyone. Evil and suffering exists in the world, and oftentimes the world, the secular world, especially um, antagonistic, atheist worldview, they'll take this question, present it to Christians as kind of the stumbling block for us. Answer this question for us. How can you believe that a good God would allow for suffering? Either he doesn't exist or he isn't good if there's evil in the world. That's the argument that they'll make. But the issue is, is that while this is an important question, we're going to answer it, uh, that question also needs to be answered by the atheistic worldview or any other religious background. They have to answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. So we just bring this up, this assumption that is a truth claim, because everybody has to deal with it. Everybody has to answer it. You can't dismiss that there's evil in the world. No one would say there's no evil, there's no suffering. It is. It's there. So that's a correct assumption. Implicit assumption number two. We uh, assume here that God exists and that he is good. Now, this one can be a little bit of a rabbit trail, so I want to keep it kind of um, a high view here. I won't have time to answer every question. But we want to answer this question from a biblical perspective. And the reason why is because anytime we come to uh, a question about who God is or what he's done or any question about God, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions about God, we want them to be rooted and based in how he has chosen to reveal himself. And so I want to actually kind of pull from Pastor Clint's uh, lesson a few weeks ago on uh, whether or not we can believe the Bible, is it reliable, and just ask the question, essentially, uh, what is the Bible? Is it just simply a historical book? Is it a uh, book of do's and don'ts? Is it a book about rules that we should just follow? Uh, is it just interesting stories? How, how should we understand the Bible? What is the Bible? The Bible is uh, basically God's revelation of himself to his creation. So we believe that God is the creator of all things, 
He created everything we see. He created us, mankind, out of his image. But the curse of sin has caused humanity to rebel and to forget their creator, to forget their God. We don't know in our sin. We don't know our God. We don't know our creator. And so God has chosen to reveal himself to his creation through the Bible. So I say that to say uh, when we answer a question about whether or not God is good, we want to go to the Bible and let that drive our understanding of God's goodness. So what does the Bible say about God's goodness? It says a lot about God's goodness. Now you're going to see I have a lot of verses here. I'm going to rapid fire through them all. So that's why they're on your notes. If you want to go back and look them up, uh, they might be on the screen. I might go too fast for them. But this is just to give, I'll do this several times tonight. I just want to give a broad overview of how the Bible speaks to this. So that's why it's going to be quick. So uh, from the beginning, we have Genesis 1, verse 30, where it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God creates good things. Exodus 33 is when Moses is asking God to show him his glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. Uh, And so there's this idea of God's glory being connected with his goodness. And so you can understand God's glory through his goodness. Uh, The Psalms are full of references uh, in relationship to uh, God's goodness. Psalm 25, 8, it says God is upright Uh, or good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 27, 13, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 31, 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness. Not only is he good, the Bible's saying that he is abundantly good. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 107, 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. So this good God does good things. And if that's too much Old Testament, we have Mark 10, verse 18, where Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So God is the only source of goodness. Romans 8, 28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's purposes are good. His end result, his end goal is good. We'll come back to that verse later. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. So God in his goodness even gives good gifts to his creation. So you get the point. Biblically speaking, God has revealed himself to be categorically good. And that's important. And that doesn't answer our question quite yet. We're just establishing these kind of premises of what the Bible has revealed about God. So then the third implicit assumption is that God allows suffering. Now this one, we'll break it up in a few ways. Within this assumption, there's kind of two additional assumptions. It's not just that God allows suffering, but the assumption here is that he has the power to stop suffering and um, just doesn't in this case. So uh, you could understand it by asking it maybe another way. Can God stop suffering, or does he have the power to? Um, And again, we've established from the Bible, just the overview here, that God is good, but maybe it's a matter of he, he wants to stop suffering and evil, but he can't. He's not powerful enough. So we'll see what the Bible has to say about this. Um, uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't allow for that notion. But anyways, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 27, where God is asking a rhetorical question. He says, is anything too hard for me? And uh, he, of course, the answer is no. And then earlier, actually, in Jeremiah 10, verse 12, he says, it is he who made the earth by his power. So again, pointing to God's power through creation. 
Psalm 147, uh, verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. That notion of God's abundant goodness, abundant power. Uh, When the angel came to Mary in Luke 1, verse 37, he says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Jesus himself actually reiterates that later on in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, where he says, With man this is impossible, speaking to the camel going through the eye of a needle. And he says, uh, after that, he says, but with God, all things are possible. So God's power is not limited. Romans 1, uh, verse 20, Paul is speaking to God's power, and he labels it as eternal power. So God is powerful. Uh, The Bible is clear about his power, but how do we understand that in relation to evil and suffering? Maybe his power is uh, usurped by evil and suffering. Not the case. Psalm 121, verse 7, it says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. So he has the power at least to keep us from evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So God is directly opposed to evil. Matthew 6.13, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And in that, as you well know, he instructs his disciples to pray, Lord, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil. So thus showing that God has the power to at least deliver us from evil. And John 17, the high priestly prayer, you all should be going through that in our community groups. Uh, Jesus instructs his disciples as he's praying for them that the Father would be the one to keep his disciples from the evil one. So Satan wants them, but they can't because God is keeping them from him. So again, it's, it's showing this kind of grandeur of God's power to thwart evil and suffering in the world. So to backtrack and recap... Uh, The question of uh, does God allow suffering or could he stop it if he wanted to, the Bible is clear that he is omnipotent. He can thwart evil and he can stop suffering. Again, this is not answering the question yet. We're just establishing who God is from the Bible. Um, And now these are just the foundational claims that we're working with. Uh, the, The Bible has presented it in this way. And so this is where we can begin to walk through actually the question because the world is gonna accuse God, like I said earlier, of either not existing because there's evil in the world or being not good, which is not a biblical framework. So let's answer the question. Uh, The way that we would go about answering this, uh, the theological term is just a big fancy word. It's called a theodicy. And what a theodicy is, it's a mashup of two Greek words. uh, One theos, meaning uh, God, it's the Greek word for God. And one uh, dikaios, the Greek word for just. And so if you mesh them together, you kind of have a literal translation of justifying God. It's basically uh, God being justified for his actions. Now, this is just a term. We're not implying that God needs us to defend him. Uh, he's, he can defend himself. Uh, but this is just how we would go about thinking through this question. And so a theodicy is basically just a defense for God, a defense for how he can remain good in the face of evil and suffering in the world. Um, there's several different theodicies that we'll look through here. Um, I'm going to start maybe from the, and these are theodicies that Christians throughout church history have actually used as kind of their framework to answer this question. I'm going to start with some of the ones that I don't feel like have a strong biblical basis or not supported by the Bible, and then we'll move to uh, the one that I believe helps us to understand and answer this question. So the first one, we'll look at the natural law theodicy or the natural law defense. This essentially is built around the fact that God is the creator of all things and that he has designed orderly, repeatable, predictable laws that govern the world. And uh, that in and of itself is not untrue. We would all agree with that. We'd affirm that um, because of the law of gravity. If I drop my notes here, they will fall to the ground. Things happen because God has 
created an orderly environment for us to live in. Um, proponents of this defense for this theodicy, they'll say that because, has, because God has created uh, this environment where there are orderly laws of nature, um, it kind of creates this fixed and stable environment to where God is not going to intervene. He's not going to usurp the laws of nature in order to um, do anything. And so natural evil, thus natural law theodicy, comes about because God is not going to do anything to interfere with these natural laws. Kind of like he kicks it off into motion and then steps back and natural evil is just an unfortunate byproduct of that. Uh, and while this seems to make sense, we can follow some of the logic here that doesn't hold up uh, because it really doesn't address the other side of evil that we talked about, which is moral evil. Natural laws don't necessarily account for these moral evils that take place and moral suffering in the world. As well as we know that through various Bible passages where there's a miracle, uh, a hand regrown, a person is um, made alive. These are things that don't happen in nature, and so God has suspended these ordinary laws of nature in order to uh, perform a miracle. So just in a very basic sense, I don't feel like that is biblically supported. Um, also, what this theodicy, what this defense does is it seems to elevate the laws of nature to where those become the sovereign rule meaning that God is not sovereign. He can't do what he wants to do. He's actually bound by these laws that he created. And I, I don't think that's a biblical picture for God interacting with his creation. So that's the natural law theodicy. Uh, the next is the free will theodicy. Now, when, when, I, when you hear free will, don't get too uncomfortable. What I mean here is um, an overarching autonomous free will for mankind to choose equally good or evil, meaning that mankind can freely choose good or evil. That's kind of the basis for this defense. And this one will get kind of tricky. We're not going to go to every uh, area that this could um, influence our view of God and his sovereignty, but just to walk through it, it's a very popular way to think. And it's probably something that most of us unknowingly probably lean towards. It's just a popular um, framework for us to think, especially given our culture and where we just exist in time. In a more modern, Western, uh, individualistic culture mentality, we just think very highly of mankind's autonomy. We want to think that we're the captain of our destiny, that we can make things happen. So it's just a very prevalent mindset in our culture. Um, and you see this theodicy kind of take root uh, in the most recent decades or centuries within church history um, just because of that influence, this individualistic, uh, we can do it kind of mentality. Um, and like I said, this is going to be foundationally built on the idea that mankind has free autonomy, or um, the phrase might be libertarian free will, meaning there's no influence, that God would in no way interfere with mankind's ability to choose good or evil, that God would not usurp that, um, that gift, per se. Um, they'll argue that for mankind to truly love God rightly and for salvation to be fair, uh, God would not in any way influence decisions or manipulate or anything of that sort. Um, and the main issue comes down to responsibility. So what they're trying to do here is trying to take the responsibility for evil and suffering off of God and put it on mankind. And so what it does is it kind of makes um, evil in the world this unfortunate byproduct of God trying to give this gift of autonomous free will. Um, and so essentially, they'll say that moral evil is just the risk that God had to take in order to provide 
this free will for all of mankind. Um, and in some ways, again, we, we want to be fair. I can understand that, the, the thought line of if I'm manipulated or even forced into doing something, am I really responsible for that? Again, we, uh, we want to understand biblically how to understand this, and this is why this defense is usually coupled with the natural law defense, because this doesn't really account for any natural evil. This just accounts for moral evil. So these usually go hand in hand. Um, also, within this framework, they won't deny God's providence and sovereignty over creation. They'll just say that um, it's this kind of modest self-restraint or this limiting of his sovereignty so that humanity can be completely free to choose good or evil fairly. Um, and uh, this, this d gets into a lot of different rabbit trails that we could chase. Things like uh, Mullenism, middle knowledge, open theism. I have some resources, we'll get to that later, of where if you want to know more about that, you can do the research there. I think for here, for right now, it's just good to keep kind of a high view of all of this. Um, I don't feel that this defense really holds up, biblically speaking. Uh, it does a similar thing that the natural law theodicy does. Um, the moral, um, I'm sorry, the, the free will theodicy holds free will, similar to natural law holding natural laws. The free will theodicy holds free will as this sovereign rule. So God is elevating free will as the sovereign rule. He won't touch it. He's bound by that. And that doesn't hold up. Biblically, So I'm going to run through a few other examples to point to where we see God interacting or even interfering with human actions and choice. Um, I didn't put these verses on the notes, but if you email me, I can send them to you. Again, this is just to show kind of a broad general scope of Scripture. So Genesis 20, we see God keeping Abimelech from violating Sarah, Abraham's wife. In Exodus 7, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart before Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God stopped Nadab and Abihu from bringing unauthorized sacrifices in the temple um, in Leviticus 10, and then a similar situation in 1 Samuel 2 with Eli's sons. In Job 42, 2, it says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So if God wants to do it, nothing can thwart his purpose to do that. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 105, 25, speaking of Israel's enemies, it says that God turned their hearts to hate his people. Proverbs 16, says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Lamentations 3, 37 through 39 speaks to his sovereignty as well as man's responsibility. It says, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that the good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? In Daniel 4, we see the now humbled King Nebuchadnezzar uh, declaring that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, speaking of God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So again, this is just a broad overview. All these verses, at least from the Old Testament, that point to God's will and purposes being done. And of course, it's absurd for us to think that we would usurp his intentions and purposes. And in the uh, New Testament, we see it as well. Acts 4, uh, 27 through 28 
It says, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8 28 we mentioned it earlier, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So scripture doesn't paint a picture for us that God has given up his authority or usurped his ability to be sovereign over his creation. And so that's why I think that the free will theodicy falls up short, at least just in that sense. But I also think what it does is it starts to undermine our, our ability to understand total depravity or uh, mankind's sinful nature. So Romans 8, verse 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what this is saying is unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, those who are unregenerate by the Holy Spirit, are not only unwilling to please God, it says they're hostile to him, but they're unable to please God. They cannot please God. They cannot choose the good over the evil because of their sin nature. So this means they wouldn't want to choose him because they're slaves to sin. And the way we might rightly understand this, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he speaks to this in his book, um, The Bondage of the Will. And he says in that that we are actually free to choose so as it coincides with our nature, which apart from Christ is sin. We have a sin nature. So that means we're free to sin all we want. And that's what we want to do because of our sin nature. And so that's why it's so important that we understand the gospel, the way it transforms our lives, is that in Christ we're given a new heart. We're given a new nature. That's why the gospel is so important. It changes our sin nature. It's a new nature that loves God. It's a new nature that loves to walk in his statutes, that loves his righteousness. It changes our nature. Uh, and one last thing I'll say on this before we move on. If God is not sovereign over everything, he's not sovereign. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. If there's one maverick molecule that is outside of God's sovereignty, then he's not sovereign. If there's one thing that does not fall underneath the authority of God, then he's not God. So moving on, uh, the divine judgment and punishment theodicy. This one argues that suffering and evil in the world is a result of God's just punishment of sin, of evildoers, of wrongdoing. So it makes a large case of God displaying his judgment against sin and how that makes him good. And that, again, that makes sense. That's right. However, that's kind of where this defense stops. So it's a little bit incomplete. We would understand that it does make sense that a just God would rightly punish sin, but this doesn't quite answer the question of um, maybe gratuitous evil, which is kind of like random acts of violence, random evil in the world, as well as it doesn't answer the question of natural evil. So we want a theodicy that will hold both of those uh, together. Um, and again, this defense is not wrong. I think it's upheld by scripture. It's just not complete. It doesn't give us a full picture to answer this question. So then in tandem with that is the soul building or soul making theodicy. And this defense argues that suffering leads us away from self-centeredness um, to God-centeredness, away from ourselves and more towards others. And it's basically saying that evil and suffering is a reminder that we need God. 
Uh, people within this framework will use the terminology that evil and suffering or pain is a megaphone to kind of get our attention and draw us back to God. And they'll say that God aims to do good things and he uses suffering in order to accomplish that. And again, similar to the divine judgment theodicy, this makes sense. I'm not arguing against that. Uh, that that's right, but that's just not full. It's not complete. It doesn't help us answer the question in uh, total. So yes, God can use a difficult circumstance, uh, but that's only part of the answer. So that gets to the last defense, the last theodicy, the greater good or the greater glory theodicy. And now with this one, you'll see and hear aspects of those previous two, um, but it's a fuller, it's a more robust defense for understanding God's sovereignty and providence as it relates to evil and suffering in the world. Now, as we get into this one, this one is difficult, and it requires a few things of us. It requires a high view of God's sovereignty, his will, his purposes, his actions. It requires a high view of God's glory as the ultimate goal and our worship of him, giving him glory. And it's also going to require us to relinquish control, or at least our desire for control, as well as our desire for knowledge. We, we want to know everything. We want to know why things happen. We want to know everything that's going on. We want to know the end goal and the way we get there. That's just part of how we're made. And we want to do that. And this theodicy is going to require us to have humility and to lay that down so that God can be God. So uh, at the beginning, we established some of those assumptions that were true, at least biblically speaking. There is obviously evil and suffering in the world. God does exist, and he has revealed himself to be good and all-powerful. And that means that he does allow evil and suffering in the world. So coming to this greater good theodicy, uh, there are three overarching themes that we'll see throughout it that are going to, again, it's going to build a framework for us to help understand God in relation to this topic. So the first theme is that God aims at great goods. He aims at greater purposes. His end goal is greater than what we might assume or know. Uh, so it's either going to be good for him, it's going to be good for mankind, or usually, if not all the time, both. God also intends that these great goods, these great purposes, these great end goals come about by way of various evils or suffering. So he's going to accomplish these end goals through evil or suffering. God leaves his creation in the dark about which goods are connected to which evils, meaning we don't know. We won't always know. Uh, God is going to accomplish this, and he's not going to tell us which goods are connected to which evils or how evil is in any way connected to the greater good. So it's just simply to say we don't know. Um, we'll see this throughout Scripture. Uh, I don't want to do what I did earlier and just kind of throw a bunch of passages at you. I actually want to look at three case studies for us to see how this greater good, this greater glory theodicy plays out. So first we look at the case of Job. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. But in the case of Job, God aims at a specific greater good, which is his own vindication, God's own vindication, being his worthiness to be served, his holiness, his glory, uh, his his essence of who he is, God being God, being magnified, and not God being worshipped simply because he provides things or simply because he provides stuff or blessings. Uh, the intention of God in the case of Job is that he would be magnified, that he would be shown worthy of worship. And the way that he accomplishes 
this intention is through not only natural evil in the book of Job, we see that through the great wind, the great fire, the disease that falls on Job, but also through moral evil, the Sabians who came in and attacked. So we see both of those happen in the book of Job, and God also leaves Job in the dark as to what's happening and what's going on. Now, at the beginning of Job, we as the reader are privy to the conversation that happens between God and Satan, but Job doesn't know. He's not there. And in fact, the entirety of the book of Job, which is not short, uh, Job does not know why this is actually occurring, and yet he still glorifies God and worships God. And on that note, God never really actually reveals to Job why he suffered. Instead, God answers back, revealing that his ways are inscrutable, meaning that um, they're unknowable. He's too wise. He's too all-powerful for us finite beings to be able to understand how he's working. And so he shows that he's the creator, that he is good, and that his purposes are higher than Job's understanding. And Job kind of responds by confessing his ignorance to that and uh, kind of affirming God's providence over his creation. And it's a difficult case study for us to look at because what it does is it makes us relegate ourselves to the position of Job. It means that we also are ignorant to God's ultimate end goal and his ultimate purposes. It means that we have to be like Job where we are trusting and steadfast when faced with evil or suffering. Another case study that helps us understand this is the case of Joseph, also in the Old Testament. And this situation is similar. God aims at a greater good, actually several. His greater good that he is intending is that he would save the broader Mediterranean world from a famine. Uh, he also intends that he would preserve his people, the nation of Israel, amid such danger in the famine. And ultimately, he also intends that he would preserve his people so that he could bring a redeemer into the world descended from the nation of Israel. So God intends the greater good of the preservation of his people, and the pathway to that is through various moral and natural evils. So Joseph's betrayal and being sold into slavery, the unjust accusation from Potiphar's wife and his imprisonment, the famine itself, all of these things are things that God used to bring about his intended greater good. And yet even here, God left these uh, moral agents, these people that intended certain things for evil, he left them in the dark as to which goods he was going to, uh, which evils he was going to use to bring about which goods. So Joseph's brothers, the Midianite slave traders, Potiphar's wife, the cupbearer, all of them were ignorant to what God was actually doing and yet blameworthy in their actions. And yet God used them to play a role in preserving his people in this time of danger. They had no idea which goods depended on which one of their evils. They intended those evils for evil, not good. Yet God redeemed the evil to make it good. And listen to how the Bible speaks to this matter uh, on the story of Joseph. So uh, Genesis 45, verse 5, it says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He's speaking to his brothers. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7 and 8, it doubles down on that. It says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And of course, probably the most famous verse out of uh, these few chapters, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. They intended evil for Joseph. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant that for good. That's what he accomplished by that. 
Psalm 105, uh, verse 16, speaking of this story, it says that while he, speaking of God, summoned a famine on the land, God brought the famine on the land, and that was actually intended for good. So God can work through the evil actions of man, the natural evil of a broken world, a world in sin, to bring about good. His intent and determination for good and his glory, it stands above and behind the choices that we make, the things that happen in our lives, and we see that again and again through Scripture. And there's one more case study I want us to look at, one from the New Testament, uh, that looks at a terrible evil and suffering being used ultimately for a greater good, in fact, the greatest good that we would ever experience, and ultimately for God's glory. And it's the case of Jesus. And I'm sure I don't need to belabor the point. You can probably see how this applies. The greatest good here is the intent to redeem lost, rebellious sinners uh, by the atonement of Christ and to bring glory to God and display his justice and his love and his mercy and his wisdom and his power. And of course, we know that this came about through a multitude of various evils. So we know that this happened by the Jewish leaders plotting against Jesus. We know that this happened through Satan's prompting and tempting and entering into Judas. We know that Judas actually betrayed Jesus We know that Pilate's unjust cowardice to condemn an innocent man. And then, of course, the actual crucifixion by the Romans, a a terrible, brutal suffering um, and death. And yet, in this moment, again, we see that God left these moral actors in this situation in the dark. They had no idea how he was going to use their evil intent, their evil actions to actually bring about uh, the greatest good. This was divinely prophesied, it was designed, and it was brought about by the sovereign work of God through these moral choices by his creation for the redemption of mankind and the world. And so this is why I feel confident. You you can see in each one of these case studies, biblically speaking, that we can use this framework to understand that God has revealed himself to be good and that he has revealed himself to be all-powerful, not just to simply um, kind of reactionary, uh, in a reactionary way, Uh, redirect evil, but actually to redeem evil. If we give up God's ability to redeem evil, then we give up the cross. The cross is the picture of the greatest evil, the only innocent man who died an innocent death. Uh, We see that being redeemed for good. That was evil redeemed for good. So if we remove that uh, God's ability to use evil and suffering, we remove the cross. We, re- we lose the gospel. We can't just throw our arms up and say, well, God just wants us to make our own decisions. It's just the way it is. He can't do anything. That's, that's not a biblical picture of our God. And so I hope this helps answer the, the question that no difficult situation uh, that you've endured to this point in your life or will endure is just a simple random action of the choices of you or somebody around you. It means that God has a purpose for it, and that one day, in glory, uh, with glorified eyes, the veil will be pulled back, the curtains will be drawn, and we'll be able to look with amazement at how God was able to take each one of these difficult situations, each one of these things that we thought was evil and intended for suffering, and yet he redeemed it ultimately for his glory and our good, and we'll see that and be thankful for his goodness in that. Nothing is wasted. These other theodicies, these other defenses for God and his interaction with evil and suffering, if we don't have a greater glory, a greater good in mind, then that means that some evil that you face, some suffering that you endure is just happenstance, and it's just wasted. 
But because of what we see in the Bible, it means that nothing is wasted. God does not waste any opportunity. He is ultimately sovereign over all these circumstances. And so what we've done here is built a foundation that will provide a roof so that when the rains of life come, you can endure that. Uh, has anybody built a house or been part of building a house? Who built the roof first before you built the foundation? Anyone? No, of course not. What we're doing is we're building a foundation and then building upon that this roof basically to help us weather the storms of life. Um, now to take that silly illustration, uh, when you see somebody who is out in the rain, what do you do? Do you throw foundation blocks at them and say, I hope you can build fast? No, you, you run out with your umbrella, your rain jacket, you wait for the storm to pass, you get them dry clothes, and then you help them build. And so that's why early on I said there's, there's two ways to approach this. And so I actually want to borrow from uh, D.A. Carson in his book, How Long, O Lord. He gives some pastoral reflections on how we can come alongside Christians specifically who are currently in the throngs of suffering and how we can encourage them. Because again, it's, there's, there's a time and a place uh, to present the information that we walked through here. And sometimes in the moment of suffering, there needs to be um, more care and more concern in that way. So I'm going to run through these things. You have them listed out there. I'm going to go through them quickly as we're running out of time here. Um, so first, grief and suffering passes through normal, predictable stages, and the timing and length of that process depends on the person, circumstances, and situations. So in other words, grief takes time, and each person deals with grief differently. So be patient. Second, uh, frequently in the midst of suffering, the most comforting answer that you can provide is simply your presence, your help, your silence, or maybe your tears. So sometimes sitting in silence with someone who is enduring suffering, maybe doing yard work, maybe bringing them a nice home-cooked meal, those are going to be uh, more spiritual help than sitting down and exegeting Romans to them. Um, and in fact, we, we don't want to necessarily always think of Romans 8. We want to think of Romans 12, 15 that says that we should mourn with those who mourn. And third, we also, with that previous point said, some verbal expressions of encouragement don't always have to seek to answer the implicit why as it relates to suffering. So in other words, sometimes simple truths are better than complex and profound ones. Sometimes we don't have to try and answer all of their various questions, but rather provide them with encouragement. Fourth, when pressed with the question of why, we will most likely need to exercise spiritual wisdom and discernment to diagnose the needs and capacity of the person. So some people sometimes are not always asking um, why and necessarily needing a specific answer, but rather comfort like we spoke about. Others sometimes are asking why and need an answer, but in that moment of suffering, they really can only bear so much. And actually Carson um, elaborates here. He says that sometimes the best short answer is to say, I can't give you all the sufficient answers to your question of why, but take courage and comfort from the fact that the one who loves you so much that he died for you asked the same question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, we must remember the unfortunate prevalence of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and stand firm that Christians this side of eternity are not immune from trials and tribulations. So we can't afford to buy into the lie that God only wants us to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, and if that's not happening, he's somehow angry or does not exist. That's not a biblical principle. So Jesus told his disciples that they would actually endure difficulty and trials, and yet, as we've seen through John in our community groups, he has given us the promise of the Holy Spirit to be our helper 
and our God this side of eternity. Sixth, uh, guilt often comes with suffering. That's just a fact. And when there is a true sense of guilt, we must remind our brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus is the one who bore our shame and our guilt at the cross so we can confess and repent of our guilt and leave it with our Savior. That also being said, there are times where there is false guilt. And where there is false guilt, we should expose that as a tactic from Satan to tempt us to forget what Christ has done for us. Seventh, it is important to offer hope and grace. That means for the long term, we look to what God has promised us in the future on the basis that he has actually fulfilled everything that he has told us in Christ. But we also understand that we need grace for the day to day. Like we said earlier, we need patience and it takes time. Eighth, above all, we must help people to know God better. So in the midst of suffering, we're too quick to sometimes take all of our scripture and all of our uh, notes and all of our deep theological books and throw them at people. Um, and instead, we need to seek to help fellow Christians learn with Job that God is great, he is good, he has made himself known to us, and that we can trust him. We can be fully satisfied in him even when we don't have all of the answers. And ninth, and probably most obvious, we must pray for those who suffer. In the midst of suffering, people oftentimes don't know what to pray. They can't even bring themselves to pray. And what a gift to uh, Christians uh, the body of Christ is, the church is to other Christians, that in the midst of suffering, we can intercede on their behalf. Second Corinthians comes to mind that uh, refers to God as the God of all comfort, the one that comforts the downcast. And so sometimes in the deepest sorrow, we need to come alongside our brothers and sisters and lift them up in prayer, asking that God would provide them with comfort. So uh, like I mentioned, I hope you've been able to gather the two ways that we would answer this. And um, I just want to, uh, real quick, I actually brought some books. Uh, you have the additional resources there. Um, the, if you've got more questions than you felt like you came in with, these would be some helpful resources. I want to run through them real quick. We have uh, Why Is There Evil in the World and So Much of It by Greg Welty. You can see it's a smaller book. It's very accessible. This focuses a lot on the greater good theodicy. It's going to be a very quick and easy read. You also have How Long, O Lord by D.A. Carson. That's part of the pastoral reflections that I just read. He focuses on um, the same kind of theodicy, but then from a pastoral perspective towards the end of the book. Then we have uh, God and the Problem of Evil, Five Views. Now, this is only presenting five different takes on how we would answer this question. So I'm not going to agree with all five of the takes in here. In fact, there are some of these that I would classify as heretical. All this does is present you with knowledge of how people will view this. And this does have um, one or two views that I would definitely agree with. This just gives us a broader understanding of how other people would come across evil. If you're an overachiever and you want to read through a cinder block, What About Evil by Scott Christensen. This is uh, very academic. It's very, um, it's very deep dive into it. Um, I think it's most helpful, but again, this is, this is massive. I don't expect this to be your casual Tuesday night reading. So um, I hope that's helpful. I, I hope that you guys see that God is not limited by his creation. He's sovereign over it. He is good. And I want to leave us here before I pray with just the truthfulness of Romans 8, bringing that all things, all things work together for good for those who are called, to, called according to his purposes. 
And like I said, if you guys have more questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'll be here after I'd be more than happy to uh, either try to answer them or point you in the right direction. And I hope this gives us a framework for how we understand our God, how we understand the difficulties that we face in life, and how we see that he redeems it all for his glory and our good. So let's pray, and then we can be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word, that it is true and that it is trustworthy, that you have revealed yourself to us to be a good, sovereign God who is providential over all things, Lord. I pray that we would see that in the midst of pain and suffering, we can look to you, that we can trust that your purposes are good, that one day we will look back and see how you have redeemed all evil and suffering in the world, ultimately for your glory. I pray, Lord, also that we would have the framework to be able to come alongside those who are in the midst of suffering, to provide comfort, to point them to the God who is good, who cares, who sent his son to die for us, that he might redeem us from sin, to be uh, made children of God. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the people in this room, that this would equip the saints for the work of ministry. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.